Hi, I'm Ray Fisman. And this is Tim Sullivan, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Ray Fisman, and I teach economics at Columbia Business School. And I'm Tim Sullivan, and I'm the editorial director of Harvard Business Review Press and a senior editor on Harvard Business Review magazine. And together, we're the author of, authors of The Org, The Underlying Logic of the Office. And uh, we are, we're recording this, it's a little bit after, we're recording this on the unofficial official publication date of the paperback edition of The Org. Longtime listeners will know that we actually had uh, Ray and Tim on right when the, the book came out. It is now in uh, paperback, which is awesome, with an, uh, an updated preference because a lot has happened in the organizational world um, since then. And really another attempt to explain the seeming illogic of the office. I, I've always said I really feel like um, we, we really resonate with, with comics like Dilbert and shows like The Office because there's so much of org life that seems illogical. And what I love about this book is it's an initial therapy that goes, you know, there may actually be some logical reasons for that stuff that you're perceiving to be illogical, um, which helps me. It, you know, it's at least a really good coping strategy, but it actually, I think, makes for um, better better management and even better organizational citizens. The reason I say it's coping is all three of us as we're recording this work or touch into work in an organizational, uh, in a university organizational life, which can seem like the most illogical, even though we're supposed to know what we're doing because we study organizations, right? So kudos on that. Uh, I don't know if that was the intent of the original uh, writing the book was to provide me therapy, but it certainly helped. <laughs> it, it actually was one of the impulses behind writing it. One I think both Ray and I saw some possibilities in the world of organizational economics as a logical framework for explaining stuff, but also we understood the frustration of people from the, you know, from their sitting down in their first cubicle all the way up through being on a board of trying to understand why organizations behaved they did and why they seemed so illogical in the first place. And we wanted people to realize that maybe there was a logic behind some of the stuff that seemed so bizarre that their organizations were doing. Um, maybe another take on that is that a lot of the stuff we write about in the book, it's not like it never occurred to you, but a lot of these things are ideas and concepts that are useful to keep in mind and be reminded of uh, and have reinforced and emphasized how powerful they are. Um, I just finished teaching uh, managerial economics to the executive MBA students here at Columbia, and we end with a class on incentive design. Now, incentive design, a lot of the basic ideas you're all familiar with, how incentives distort effort. Um, how you have problems of teaching to the test. But I think there's a lot of value in making people, confronting people with um, uh, you know, a framework for thinking about the problem and also the scale of the problem. And reminding them that it's useful to always put themselves in the shoes of those on the receiving end of the incentives they might design. Um, there's a, you know, I usually open with a line which is not my own, and there are lots of variants on this um, that they find to be, or I find to be, particularly evocative. Uh, this is from our friend Luis Garicano, who teaches at the London School of Economics. Um, in 
uh, conveying how uh, just the creation of well-meaning incentives can screw up uh, people's incentives uh, is that um, a performance metric is useful as a performance metric only until it's used as a performance mat metric. <laughs> that is, uh, it probably is useful, a useful bit of information, how much a teacher improves her student's test scores, only until you start paying her based on how much she improves her student's test scores. Then all of a sudden, her students' test scores aren't correlated with anything you care about because all she does is teach them how to do well on tests. There are myriad examples of this. Um, but the point of departure is still putting yourselves in the shoes of the person on the receiving end, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a salesperson, whether it's a bank cashier, uh, and thinking about how, uh, how they will behave once, um, once the incentives are in place. And I think there's a account of a, a, something that follows from that, too, is a lot of times when people are subject, when they see how uh, incentivizing somebody goes off the rails, so teaching to the test, for instance, they decide they're going to scrap the whole system, kind of tear the whole thing down. And so you have a whole genre of business books in particular that are about kind of blowing up the organization, getting rid of everything, and people take down the good with the bad. Um, the example that we use pretty frequently is if you're remodeling an apartment, you don't just cut down everything, including the load-bearing walls, and, and take out the plumbing as well because you threaten to make the whole building collapse. Part of the intention of the book is to help people to understand where the organization's load-bearing walls are so they don't just rip everything out, which is oftentimes the impulse when you think everything is ridiculous. Well, see, I, I like that analogy, but my wife watches a lot of HGTV, and I think about <laughs> half of the shows on HGTV, they accidentally remove the load-bearing wall or, or other such disaster. But um, No, uh -huh. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, but you, I think you're absolutely right. There is that sort of anti-org genre that is saying, oh, none of this works, and so let's all go back to the way that, you know, Paleolithic man organized himself out on the you know hunting grounds, and that'll be sort of enough. And and of course the the irony to me is we see a lot of these um, a lot of these movements, especially right now. I think the the predominant one to me is the the sort of holacracy movement. Right, we're going to mm -hmm. abandon everything and sort of organize in these different circles, which which sounds really good on paper, but there isn't a lot of data either in organizational psychology or in economics or anything like that to explain why this is going to work and when it doesn't, what works. And and there's actually, to me, the, the favorite chapter in, in your book that sort of resonates with this is the, the anti-management um, school of thought. And you you point out brilliantly that, no, no, no there, there are still a few things that uh, managers do well. And even if you're going to eliminate the management function, you need to figure out how to do these things rather than just say, let's just do away with all of it and trust everyone. Tell us a little bit about sort of what management is good for and how we at least need to respect those roles, whether we give them to people with the title manager or what have you. Um, Tim as the manager in our <laughs> collaboration, it seems like you should take the first shot at it. <laughs> sure. As somebody who actually gets paid to manage people, um, I, I, I think the role of the manager is absolutely vital, especially in my own organization. The... Um, yeah, there, there's this idea that, I think it was in a piece that Ray and I published in Slate, I don't remember exactly which one it was, or it might have just been something that Ray wrote at the comments was um, that instead of, that 
the way you could yes, improve it management. Yes, it wasn't slight. Yeah, it, it was, and I think it was about stuff that we ended up drawing on for the book, which was, if you really want to improve organizational performance, take out, uh, just grab a random hundred managers out of your organization and shoot them. You know, that wasn't an uncommon sentiment in the or, in, in the comments, um, that managers are, they obstruct things, they're, um, they get in the way of people actually getting work done. And the argument that Ray and I make in the book is actually they are vital for a lot of things that go on in the organization, both in terms of kind of people management about making sure that the right things are getting done, but also in terms of in information systems of making sure the right information gets from kind of the shop floor up to the upper levels of the organization, that it works both ways. And I'll let Ray talk about the study that was done in, the, in an Indian textile factory because he has a better memory than I do. But there's really clear evidence from some empirical studies that management, if not managers per se, makes an enormous difference in productivity and outcome. Yeah, the India study in particular, yeah, it's part of a much broader body of evidence on how well-managed organizations do lots of things, ranging from treating heart attacks to educating children to making more money better. Um, what's interesting about the India study is that, well, it's a double-edged sword. It um, uh, adheres to what is the gold standard of proof in uh, the sciences, or social sciences. That is, there's a randomized trial where some textile factories are assigned by flip of, based on the flip of a coin to get better management, um, and others aren't. Um, the other edge to the double-edged sword is that you know, this is naturally a bracketed exercise that involves you know, a few dozen textile factories in one part of India. You need to be a little careful about making grand sweeping claims on the basis of this one study alone, which is why I say it's part of a much larger body of work. Um, essentially, the ones that, got the, that came up heads rather than tails had a group of Accenture consultants come in, and you know there is um, uh, an active discussion, and we're getting at least a bit of it here on what constitutes good management. So they are getting what Accenture considers to be good management. That is more systems for uh, deciding um, the precise roles that each person in the factory takes care of, for managing inventory, for managing flow of information, and so forth. Um, they come in and implement their Accenture systems. They train people in the factory to follow them after they're gone. And you know, within, le within a year, essentially, better management has paid for itself. Uh, now, the authors of this study uh, Nick Bloom at Stanford, David McKenzie, the World Bank, and a number of others. Um, they take these pre-post pictures of the factories that really essentially uh, tell it all. That is, before there is good management, you have a bunch of people loafing around these filthy, debris-strewn factory floors. Um, you know, that are not just unproductive, but downright hazardous, after there is good management, you know, there's a clear workflow. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not just that information is flowing around the organization better. There's a clearer sense of 
accountability for who's doing what. And when you have better accountability, usually people are more inclined to do um, uh, what they're meant to do, or they actually know what they're meant to do. Now, this is a whole package, a whole suite of goods, a whole suite of interventions that took place together. So we can't put our finger on this one thing or that one thing and say, you know, it was uh, more well-defined roles that did it, or it was better incentives that did it, or it was a better inventory system that did it. But all of these things acting in concert, all these things that Accenture believes is good management combined to make, make these much better run organizations. I think one of the telling uh, stories from that, from the Indian textile experiment in particular, was that there is one uh, factory owner. It turns out he is, before the management systems are put in place, he is the most efficient factory owner. His, he has the best output. Um, he actually wears the supply room closet key around his neck on a piece of yarn so that when a weaver runs out of uh, yarn, they have to come find him, and he go, goes and unlocks the closet to give them a new spool of thread to go make more yarn. Um, after that, that, you know, he doesn't have to do that anymore. The idea that everything, that all of the management is embodied in this one owner, all of the systems are embodied in him and the yarn around his neck and the clipboard he carries around, he can do away with all of that. The kind of span of control can expand. And one of the arguments that people made after this um, after the study was all the stuff is self-evident, like moving broken machinery away from the loading dock door. Well, who wouldn't do that? You know, coming up with a way of keeping track of inventory so you don't have to wear the key around your neck. Who wouldn't do that? And the answer is, well, this guy. You know, these people didn't do it. It's not like these are just natural things that you take to. You actually have to have some management and management systems to make things more efficient. Oh, totally. There's, there's self-evident and then there's post-self-evident, meaning after you've gone right. through it, it's self-evident, right? Um, I, I wonder though, so one of the, one of the questions I have and have been thinking about and chewing on since I always remember the key story from, from the book too, but one of the things I've always been chewing on is, is how much do you think it's about the, uh, having layers of management versus establishing good systems that are able to keep sort of things accountable. In other words, if you're looking to do a more flattened hierarchy, it's not just about sort of ripping out management positions and, and, and what have you, but actually sort of, are, is there a way to install systems that help take the place of what used to be sort of a people role? One difficulty in stripping away uh, layers of human beings and replacing them with systems is there are lots of situations that require discretion. Um, and unless you maintain these layers, you have a disparate, decentralized, uh, empowered uh, bureauc or empowered organization that is empowered not just to do things for good, but also things that can utterly destroy the organization. So uh, one recent example, one that came up after we wrote the um, uh, first version of the book, is a case of Uber's various rogue offices around the country doing things that I think genuinely the people in San Francisco were not that happy about, like the whole business with uh, the New York office uh, taking the initiative to call drivers at a competing car service to lure them to some locale and then at the last second canceling the trips 
that's something that uh, a scheme that was hatched locally, where if there were more checks and balances in the organization, probably would not have taken place. And my understanding is that actually Uber, um, the company, the digital company of the future, is moving towards greater centralization and control precisely for this reason. And I, I think that gets at another question about systems replacing human beings or, or layers of human beings too, is um, the question of scalability. So the farther you get away from that centralized model, the more you have to be worried about things like fit, and that has, an, it has implications for your human resources strategy, right? If you're going to say that everybody in the company has this greater degree of discretion because we have fewer systems or, or, or fewer layers of management, um, then that means people have to be acculturated much more greatly to the way the organization works. You have to find the right people, which makes that HR function even harder, um, especially when you're talking about when employment gets down or you're going to have to start paying higher wages. So there are a whole bunch of kind of um, a whole bunch of dominoes that fall when you start talking about getting rid of layers of bureaucracy. So it may be one thing to have a tomato factory out west that has no management levels and everybody can talk to each other and they make group decisions and it's all around canning tomatoes. That seems relatively easy. I think when you start getting into more complicated organizations that are not only much larger but um, more spread out, then the question becomes can you sustain uh, the organization without those levels of centralization. I mean, that, that's one reason when um, uh, Marissa Meyer took over Yahoo, is that right? Yeah. Um, she brought everybody into the organization and, and we actually thought that was, you know, no more working at home. For the foreseeable future, you've got to come in and actually be on premises so we can all see each other and get some strategic alignment. That struck us as a perfectly reasonable thing to do under the circumstances. Hmm. So you you lay out a you lay out a bit of a Sophie's choice then. So you say, oh, well, we can we can get rid of managers, but in order to put those systems in place, we have to have a stronger HR function in order to make sure we have the right people. I'm I'm not sure that's a trade off a lot of people would be willing to make, right? No managers in exchange for a more empowered HR department, right? And and really super high bars. That's going to weed out a lot of the people who might otherwise make it into the organization. That makes it hard to scale. Yeah. Yeah, no, agreed. So you, you bring up a couple interesting points about some of the things that have changed, like the, the Marissa Meyer example um, and others. I wonder what else, you, you've got a really interesting um, perspective, I think. What, what I think is really cool about the way that most books, you know, you go to you go to hard hardcover and you publish it and then you know, nine months to 12 months later, an, an unchanged, untouched version of the paperback comes out just to sort of try and soak up a little bit more of that audience. Whereas yours was a little bit longer and even sort of a switch in um, publisher, which I think, you know, you, you said you didn't do much updating, but I think provides you a cool perspective to look at how has the business landscape changed? How have these ideas been received, et cetera? Um, that I think a lot of people don't get to think about, especially if they're thinking about, you know, what do I write next and et cetera, et cetera. So what have you noticed um, has changed or what has the effect of the book since publication been? I think for many readers, uh, the book was really frustrating. I think it's because there is this <laughs> tendency, there's this tendency, if I dare say so, in, I don't want to say in the management literature, in the world, for people to expect and hope for the five steps to salvation. And we certainly don't do that. All we do is lay out a bunch of problems. And 
uh, it was certainly um, the case that there were reader feedback comments that uh, went some something along the lines of, uh, I expected this to essentially give me some guidance on how to make my uh, place of employment a worker's paradise. And uh, all it did was tell me about problems. I think that's slightly overstating it in the following sense. First of all, we do provide people the framework for thinking about the world. And second, how on earth are you going to solve your organization's problems unless you really have a deeper understanding of what those problems are in the first place? No, I think I think you're absolutely right. It's it's one of the things that I mean I'm I'm a, I'm again a lean a little bit towards the organizational nerd side than the practicing manager side, but I think to, so much of the the literature that's aimed at people in in, man, in industry and in management is here are five easy steps to turning around your organization blah 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 or here's what to no offense this is an HBR title here's what to do in your first ninety days exactly timelined out what to do right. Whereas your book is a bit more like reading a book about engineering. It doesn't lay out, here's how to build a bridge. It lays out, here are all of the principles you need to have an understanding of. Now go design your bridge, right? Or like you were saying um, you were saying earlier that it gives that sort of framework uh, to understand all of these issues for so that you're not tearing down a load-bearing wall. I was the, the other piece of it, too, is I think a lot of people say post-reading that they knew all this. Right? But it's another thing to be able to take those principles into account when you're actually facing a choice. So we do tell the story in the book of a guy who works for the Department of Justice in New York, who's very smart, obviously. He prosecutes the, the, the mafia, and he talks about um, the lack of resources since 9-11 for mafia prosecutions, how they're all going into terrorism prosecutions. And... Uh, and he's bemoaning the fact that the mafia will make a comeback in New York, and what are you going to do? And, and Ray asked him, well, what do you think they ought to do? And he says, you know, I have these subpoenas that I've got to send into Washington to get approved, and it takes all this time and money to do it. Why don't we just, you know, take out that layer of oversight and everything will be fine? <laughs> and, because you know, what those stopped. people are doing is clearly useless. <laughs> right. And the idea that, one, I'm actually really happy with a certain amount of oversight from the Department of Justice when it comes to subpoenas. Um, but if he were, to, if somebody else were to make the argument to him about their organization, he would say, wait a minute, you know, that doesn't make the most sense here. Uh, but when you're caught in the moment, it's very easy to say, you know, I can cut aside all this fat or my organization is different and there's all this useless stuff going on. Um, people forget the really fast when it comes to facing uh, their own organizational dysfunction. Yeah. To, to abuse the analogy, when you're trying to redecorate the living room, it doesn't occur to you that the piping to the kitchen runs right through the floor, right? So exactly. understanding that is super important. Uh, I wonder if we can switch from this book and ask you both a couple of questions. Uh, one we asked you um, before, and because it's been so long, the answer has um, undoubtedly changed, which is what are you reading right now? Uh, I went in Jamaica. My brother is uh, currently working his way through some list of the hundred best novels of the 20th century. And when he reads a particularly good one, he sends it my way. He knows that I could possibly work my way through the full hundred myself. Uh, I just started a novel called The Martian. I am a space geek. And the book is about, uh, in the set in the near future, it's the first manned mission to Mars and somebody gets left behind. And uh, the reason it's more science than science fiction is he actually has to use 
kind of contemporary science to figure out how he's going to survive until they can get back to get him. Um, and it's fun because it's both, it's, it's less psychology and more how is he actually dealing with this environment in, in, in a quasi-realistic sort of way. I think that and would I, give me nightmares. Yeah, well, I read it like a page and a half and then I fall asleep because I'm old. Right, well, and then have said nightmares. That's what I would, that's what I would freak <laughs> out about, but that's fine. I, I travel so much now that I have recurring nightmares of missing planes, missing flights. And so the idea of reading an entire book about missing the most important flight in your life would, would terrify me. Right, but then, it's, then, you, then you're all set. Then you know, you've missed it and you've just got to deal with it. And, and the world, it doesn't end. You just get stranded on Mars. Yeah, the, well, the world doesn't end, but you certainly might. So there's that. <laughs> um, okay, on, on that note, and I, know, I already know the answer to this question, but I would love the chance to sort of dig in and talk about it a bit, which is that the last question we ask everybody is, what's next for you? What are you working on? I know for you two, that takes the form of a new book. Yeah. So uh, the last year or so, we've been working on a book about the recent history and near future of markets. That is, there are a lot of ideas um, that have been generated in the field of economics that have percolated out into the rest of the world that have totally changed the way we think about markets and the way markets are practiced. Um, and we're uh, putting together what is a decidedly non-comprehensive summary of this revolution in markets that's taken place. Yeah, we started talking about, when we had finished the org, we started talking about next projects, and one of the things we talked a little bit about was what are the most important theory papers in economics from the 20th century? And wouldn't it be fun to kind of write about the most important economic theory papers, because um, Ray's an economist and I'm, I'm an economics geek. And we came around to the idea that, look, if you start looking at these really important papers, a lot of them have had this direct impact on the way the world works. So um, we thought that intersection was really interesting to talk about uh, kind of George Akerlof's Lemons paper or Michael Spence's signaling theory and the fact that it not only describes the way the world works, but it also has had an impact on the way the the world works, the kind of perf what a sociologist would call performativity of economic theory. And that's just been something that uh, it's taken up the past year or so to, to wrap our heads around how we want to present that idea um, that you probably, again, it's it's a little bit like an engineer, engineering framework uh, book in the same way that the org is, that you fundamentally misunderstand the world if you don't understand these concepts and how they've played out really since the end of World War II. Yeah, I think that's that's fascinating. It's sort of as as I'm listening to that, it's to me it it sounds sort of like freakonomics, but for economics papers that are actually relevant to your life instead of just uh, what McDonald's has in common with drug dealers. No offense yes. to the freakonomics guys, but no. yeah, yeah. And there's also we we've tried to construct. We we think there is this narrative arc about the way that there's a narrative arc both in economics of the way modeling used to be done and the introduction of really high-powered mathematics into economics and how that's changed since World War II. And also the, the other arc being that the way that we as consumers and as citizens really interact with markets has changed dramatically um, based on some of the, the kind of instantiation of some of these economic theories. 
No, very, very cool. So that that sounds equally fascinating. So consider yourself already invited to be uh, on the on the the next episode of the or, or when that comes out to be on another episode of, of Leader Lab because that sounds totally fascinating. And I'm looking forward to actually reading it, um, which is cool. In the meantime, the book I'm lo- actually looking forward to rereading again because as we as we talk over. Uh, about it again, it just makes me want to dig in and like reread the story of the Indian factory because uh, clearly I only remembered the key. No, I'm kidding. I remembered all of it, but it's, <laughs> it's a fascinating look. The book again is the org, the underlying logic of the office. If you uh, if you love Dilbert comics, you love the office, and you want to figure out why some of that crazy stuff makes sense, but more importantly, you want to you want to understand what's going on in an office so that if you're going to renovate it, you've got some basic fundamentals of how it was built that you can stay true to. You have to know the rules in order to break the rules. So check out the org. Uh, Ray and Tim, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thanks, David. A lot of fun. Thanks again.